0: I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio so stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. The self-regulation podcast that I recorded with Shade Weitzel, which I will of course link in the show notes, has gotten a lot of discussion over my Patreon, and there are a couple of questions that came up that I wanted to address here, and I thought we could maybe do a little bit of a follow-up to that episode. So the first question comes from Kristen, and Kristen writes, Can self-regulation, as discussed in your podcast with Shade, be considered a type of start button procedure. If barking is part of the dog wanting reinforcement, would you ever attempt to work through it with this type of self-regulation training? So first I want to address the question of can essentially waiting for the dog to offer stillness or calmness be a start button style procedure? And the answer is yes. My worked up start buttons for high arousal type of games are always offer me calmness, offer me stillness. When you offer me calm still eye contact or maybe a sustained nose target, then we will start the game. So yes, it's kind of merging with my concept that I also teach in worked up called Show Me You're Able To, which stems from um, once upon a time I was in a kindergarten classroom with a friend of mine who was the kindergarten teacher because it was dog week. So I was there to talk about dogs and I had one of my dogs with me. And my friend is a brilliant teacher and she had all these little kids in the room who some of them were really struggling to sit still or control themselves they were really excited about a dog being there. And one of the little boys kept kind of jumping up and ooh, 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 and raising his hand and waving his hand and pick, call me, pick on me. And she would just calmly look at him and say, show me you're able to. And he would kind of, oh my gosh, he would try and he would try to hold still and then he would outburst again and she would look at him and she would just go, show me you're able to. And then he took this deep breath and he put his hands down and he raised his one hand calmly and he was quiet and she immediately called on him. And it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Um, it was beautiful teaching of this kid, and I try to be that for my dogs. So I try to say to them, "Show me you're able to." And this self regulation concept kind of feels like that to me. It feels like you know, show me you can control yourself. What I talked about in the podcast with Shade was more about imparting this concept to our dogs because they don't come with us able to do this. They have to learn how to do it. And the podcast is all about teaching them how to do it. Just implementing it right away as a start button procedure before the dog knows how to do it will crash and burn and will not work well for anyone. And I do think that's a misunderstanding that comes up often in my worked up principles is that the dogs actually have to be taught to control themselves before they can be asked to control themselves. So I would teach the concept certainly out of context, and then you could bring it into context, like a start button procedure. The next part of Kristen's question has to do with barking. And if the dog is barking at you to make you stop, start or make you give reinforcement, can you wait that barking out? And the question would be how successful will you be? How successful are your cues in essentially saying to so the dog, show me you're able to. If those are successful, if the dog understands that offering stillness also involves offering quiet, then you may be able to use that successfully. I have not had success waiting out barking in my life, which is why I have a totally different way to approach it, which I've covered in the Barking podcast. And then Elise wrote um a nice question and I'll read the whole thing there's a couple of questions embedded in here and then I will go back so uh Elise writes when dealing with a dog that has no manners at the door barking barging slamming I get the concept that waiting for the dog to offer self-control instead of me asking for a behavior is key I also get that this is a learned skill in other areas of life as well and I hope I got those concepts right I think you're right Elise at least then, numbers her questions. She writes, One, did I hear that you'd feed approximations of the behavior you want? And the answer to that is yes, I do feed approximations depending on the circumstance. She continues, in the case of a door, could this mean that you'd open the door when you see something that approximates what you want? No. So excellent uh, kind of pointing out. You're saying, are you saying feed as in reinforce with the functional reinforcer? I actually mean give food. So I feed approximations so that I can pay that actual behavior I want, that stillness, with the functional reinforcer of going out the door. And then the rest of that question maybe barking but no slamming or a moment of stillness, right? So Elise is just naming some approximations. No, I would not actually reinforce those approximations with the final reinforcer of going out the door. I would feed those approximations with food to indicate to the dog they're on the right track, and then I would let them. I would release them out the door when I actually got the behavior that I wanted. Why is it complicated? But essentially because it's going to be very hard for me to not reinforce the garbage I don't want. Because what if the dog gives me a second of stillness and then I open the door and the dog barges through the door and slams into the door frame on his way out? Now I have essentially reinforced those behaviors that I do not like. So I'm feeding those approximations until I get what I want and then I'm releasing to that functional reinforcer which is going out the door why this works is because i believe is because the food is almost a consolation prize it's almost a communication it's like i've taught you for so long that when i feed you you're on the right track to reinforcement and so and sometimes that is a toy and sometimes it's released to the agility run and so sometimes the final reinforcer the functional reinforcer isn't that food but the food is still in our communication system as meaning to the dog as indicating to the dog that he's on the right track Lisa's second question is, what does this look like in a multi-dog household? If one dog is being rude, does everyone get held up from going outside? I feel like making everyone wait is unfair to the other dogs, especially when one dog hates barking, but letting others out is almost rewarding to the rude dog in that it signifies they're closer to getting out. I'm probably overthinking this. Currently, I use crates and platforms. Dogs who observe the rules go out and the offender stays until quiet you know, Elise, I think you're on the right track. So no, basically the rule is nobody gets to barge their way through the door. And if that means that I've got one dog that is totally untrained and cannot participate in this, that dog's not going out the door at the same time as the other dogs. That dog is getting trained instead. So when I feel like everybody's capable of it is when I bring it all um, together. I have a lot of dogs too. And so when i feel like everyone is personally individually capable of doing this thing then i will bring them all together and release them one by one which is why i also use names to release through the door i also use crates and platforms to help them in this situation so i have a couple of young dogs that can station really well when i open the door but if the station's not there for them they have a harder time they might make more mistakes so i will definitely use those stations one dog hating barking i would probably help that dog out in some way meaning maybe that dog does get, re- get get released before the other dog shuts up so that they don't have to sit in there and listen to the barking um i don't worry too much about fairness to be honest other than if the dog hates barking like that's that's beyond fairness to me that's subjecting the dog to an aversive fairness as far as who gets to go out and when i don't care whoever's being the most polite is who gets to go out. But you have a really interesting point here that I think is a rabbit hole I wanna go down just for a second, which is that you feel like releasing the other dogs is almost rewarding to the rude dog in that it signifies that they're closer to getting out. This is actually, really interesting because I see this happening as well so maybe I've got three dogs in a crate in crates next to each other and one dog is barking and carrying on and I want to go feed the dogs next to that dog who are quiet simply picking up food and walking near the crates may be reinforcing that barking even though that dog didn't get food And the reason, I believe, is about the different uh, neurotransmitters at play, the different hormones at play, I think that um, if the dog gets a spike of dopamine, and remember dopamine is the thing that makes you want something, not the thing that makes you like something, so if they get that spike of dopamine from that anticipation of being reinforced, they absolutely could be reinforced you know, what's better perusing the menu and and thinking about what you're going to eat or actually eating? It's, it kind of depends on how hungry you were in the first place. Right. And there are a lot of different, really interesting studies about people and about addiction and about, you know, all kinds of things that have to do with this, but you are right in thinking that it's possible that letting the other dogs out, is actually reinforcing the quote-unquote rude dog. So you're smart to be thinking about that. I would insist on everybody being relatively calm before anybody gets released. And what's further interesting about that, because that's another rabbit hole, is that there is some evidence to suggest that basically having a group contingency, so essentially nobody gets the thing nobody gets the reinforcer unless everybody's doing the right thing may have some effect in social species if i'm remembering correctly the information we have is actually on dolphins and if um if all of the dolphins didn't do the correct behavior in it was a captive environment and if all the dolphins didn't do the correct behavior none of the dolphins got their fish and the dolphins might actually even attack or aggress towards the one that screwed it up for the rest of them. So dolphins are very, very sophisticated and I'm not saying that dogs are that sophisticated, but I am saying that there's a chance that there is a social, um, that there, there are biological reasons that dogs might might recognize group contingencies. So that is another really interesting thing to think about in all situations, not necessarily um, only in self-regulation situations. Thank you both for those awesome questions that allowed me to just dive back into self-regulation for a moment. I really appreciate just being able to run down those trails run down those side trails and rabbit holes and and think more about these things you helped me be nerdier than i already am and i couldn't love you more for it and some more patreon questions for you the first one comes from Jules, who writes i have an eight month old border collie aussie on an unaltered male do you have any tips for working with an adolescent herding dog or do you know of any detailed resources on this topic i'd also love to know how you decide when or if to neuter or spay a dog. I've been looking at a lot of research and it sounds like there are compelling reasons to not neuter at all, even though people seem to think it's downright unethical to not spay or neuter here in the U.S. Thank you. Jules, I'm going to just briefly talk about the spay or neuter situation I have talked about that a little bit before on the podcast and maybe it's time for me to get another professional on the podcast to talk about the pros and cons of spay neuter because as a non-veterinarian I don't really feel qualified to talk about it you are correct there are a lot of feelings and there are a lot of reasons for those feelings um, in the U.S. about spay neuter but it's true that there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, which is why you're not finding one. So you're doing your research and the reason you can't find the answer is because there isn't one. So it is a personal choice that you need to weigh pros and cons about, but um, in general, I think that talking to a lot of different veterinarians and also talking, also reading like you're doing as much as you possibly can, making sure that you're reading things from good sources will help you to make that decision. For my personal dogs, um, I wanna leave them intact as long as I can. I want them to be intact in general. For me, spay-neuter is not something that I automatically do, but I do for a reason. Um, And a reason is gonna be maybe health, maybe behavior, but it's certainly not going to be just because it's what everybody does. However, you asked about tips for working with adolescent herding dogs. And first of all, I do have a course coming up in October, um, my Teenage Tyrants course at FDSA. So you'll definitely want to check that out. That is the resource that I have for you for working with adolescent dogs of all breeds and all types. Um, And my kind of general tip here is that when they hit that age, all that's happening is they're proving to you what you trained and what you didn't. They're proving to you what you what was kind of natural to them and what you actually reinforced enough to stay around. so you want to continue to lay high high rates of reinforcement down. Um, you want to for those behaviors that you want rather than thinking about control. so we want to really, really control those adolescent dogs and instead we want to give them as much freedom as we possibly can while reinforcing. Behaviors that we do want to see. And maybe an entire episode um, will be coming down the pike in anticipation of the Teenage Tyrant's course. Thank you for your question. All right, Mariana writes I am reading your no choice blog post, which was really helpful as I'm starting cooperative care with my seven year old dachshund. However, while we do that, I still need to do some non choice procedures like some hair trimming, brushing, and nail trimming. He tolerates all of these in the non choice way we've been doing and i do as you do simply handling him and not giving him any commands or anything that he can say no to for me to ignore and disrespect his no but sometimes i think this might affect our cooperative care efforts do you think this might be a big deal breaker for our cooperative care drills honestly if you're doing it correctly no it shouldn't be but you said your dog is seven so it's it's likely that your dog has a longer history with no choice procedures than with choice procedures. And so um, know that it will take a while for the reinforcement for those choice procedures to kind of outweigh any potential yucky feelings that could come with the no choice procedures. And I also just wanna say that if it feels like the choice procedures are laden with conflict and hard for the dog, ditch them. Especially if if you already have really good Uh, no-choice procedures set up that are not stressful, to me, that is cooperation. That is cooperative care. Um, I think you're probably talking about voluntary, no-restraint type of care, which is great, but not accessible all the time. And so if it feels like those are kind of conflict-laden and hard, I would ditch them and I would just go back to your um, established routine Should they have an effect on each other? Not necessarily if you're keeping the context cleanly different enough. So I would do them in different places um, with very, very different antecedents. Next one from Savvy. I would love details about your complex marker system and what different cues you use and why. I wouldn't object to an entire podcast episode on this. I really want to stop feeding from my hands or just tossing a treat to the ground to help get my sticky Aussie off me. It's been great for our beginner classes, but now I'm ready to for her to use the confidence i know she has and i think some new cues would be beneficial so savvy i think you're asking two questions the first one is about my marker system but the second is about your specific issue you're having and maybe how a different system could um, affect that issue so the first question basically i am not going to give you a list of my marker cues (laughs) i am going to instead just say that i think most people have gone overboard in this situation and i think we all need to take a step back and think more about clean mechanics if your mechanics are not clean then you should still be focusing on one marker and cleaning up those mechanics. And when those mechanics look good, you can maybe add a second or a third. And I do not teach a different cue for every different way that I deliver reinforcement. I teach a different cue when I need a different cue. So that brings me to the next part of your question, which which is where you may need a cue, but more so you need a different delivery of your reinforcement for, I'm assuming, agility. I only teach, like I said, marker cues that I need I don't teach them just for the hell of it um, and I primarily I primarily use one in any given session that I'm using unless I want to ask the dog to discriminate between them which is a separate skill that I value so you certainly could teach the dog to run ahead and find a dead toy on a cue and that's um, or even a dead toy that is full of food so like a foodstuff toy And that will help the dog to drive away and off of you. And that would be a place, a good place to begin. You can also um, check out, I don't know when it's running, I believe in the October term, uh, Shade Weitzel has a class called Crucial Concepts um, for competition. And that would be something you could check out as far as learning more about these things. Next one's from Jennifer, who writes, I just listened to the engagement podcast, and now that it's warmer out, I'm struggling with environmental distractors as I train agility in my backyard with my two-year-old border collie, birds and bugs to chase, chasing people who walk by the fence, etc. I have been conflict- conflicted on how to handle him running off mid-session due to distraction. Do I end the session to avoid self-reinforcing chasing and running, or... or- Do I wait it out for him to re-engage? This was an issue last summer, but got better over the winter because of fewer distractions. So Jennifer... It's hard to say without actually seeing your session, but to me distractions are just reinforcers in the environment that are better than my activity and my game. And I do not ever ask my dog to do stuff for me in the face of distractions that hefty until I feel like they can comply appropriately. So I wouldn't be doing agility if there are likely to be these types of distractions. I would instead be only working on paying the dog for that offered engagement. When you can't get rid of the dog, even when there are birds around, that's when you ask for those harder behaviors. Um, If the dog runs away, your session is kind of shot. Um, unless they come like immediately back and go right back to work which is usually not how it happens and you may as well just throw in the towel I would not wait for the dog to be done chasing and then come back to work and then go ahead and reinforce and go back to work because you will build a pattern when you do that but essentially it is what can the dog give you reliably in the face of those distractions and that's all you should be asking for in the backyard until the dog can give you more than they were giving you previously All right, next one is from Gail, who writes, I have a -a seven-and-a-half-year-old neutered male golden retriever who can be reactive to unfamiliar dogs, especially puppies. He's never bitten another dog, but if threatened, he will take them down. Wow. (laughs) He has several doggy friends, mostly female, but two male friends, one intact. He acclimates to new dogs after we get to know them, and I'm looking for my next puppy for agility, and I was wondering if it makes any difference if it's a male or a female. Does it make introducing a puppy easier if it is the opposite sex. If I get a male, I do not intend to neuter him until he's two years old. I've listened to your introducing a dog to a difficult household and plan on following your guidelines. Thanks so much. So Gail, first of all, you say reactive, but I don't actually know what that means. It may mean that the dog, barks and lunges when he sees a dog across the street but it may mean that the dog attacks another dog that comes near him which is kind of what it sounds like um or it may mean that the dog will just get into an altercation easier than you think is appropriate based on what you wrote so i don't know what you mean by reactive but i am going to answer your question about getting a puppy which is that the gold standard for a multi-dog household is to have one male one female If you're going to have more than that, things get complicated. If you're only going to have two dogs, it should be a male and a female for your best ease of transition into having two dogs. So the easiest thing for them to accept usually is the opposite sex. Sometimes, you know, there's rare exceptions, of course, but it sounds like your dog does not have uh, specifically aggression towards females. And so I would stack the deck in your favor and plan on getting a female and then plan on... It taking a very long time for them to be friends and it take as long as it needs and then they will be friends because the dog does have some friends and so we would want that to be the case for your situation. Thanks everybody for all of your questions. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a CogDogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dogs. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash CogDogRadio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.